Man, isn't it just great to be able to come together every, every Sabbath and come and worship? Man, I just love, I just love fellowshipping. I think that's the, the greatest gift the gospel has given us, is the ability to fellowship. Like-minded believers from different backgrounds that have different stories, and yet here we are embracing a single story, a better story, a more complete story, a story that is so good that when you, you, know, when you hear it, when it pierces your heart, you almost have to get up. You almost can't sit still because it's just that good. And in a year that we have had, like 2020, I think we, we need to often pause. I, don't, I, I think we're often in motion, right? We're always, I, I'm guilty of this. Those of you who know me know that I'm very guilty of this. I'm always like, okay, what do we got going on? What's up, what's up next? All right, let's go do this. Okay, all right, we finished that. Now it's up to this. That's just, that's just, that's just me. I want to go and do stuff. I struggle sitting down. And pausing, and I struggle reflecting. In fact, sometimes God has to halt me right where I am so that I am forced to reflect. But there's a time of the year that comes around that almost forces us to reflect, and it's the end of the year. I mean, every new year we do this thing. I don't, I don't know why we do it, because we tend to not be very good at, at accomplishing it, but we set out this list of all the things that we would like to do in the new year. I, being as ambitious as I am, often try to up the ante and read more books throughout the year. But it gets difficult, because life starts to, starts to creep in, and you, and you have this you know, this instance or this instance or, or this event, and, and all of a sudden your plans, your New Year's resolutions don't quite get accomplished. But yet, here we are at the end of another year, and for some of us, most of us, I would argue most of us, we've been looking forward to 2021, but I've been spending time reflecting on 2020. And so before we kind of get into that reflection, let's go ahead and just, will you join me for, for prayer? Father, we have gathered, we've worshipped, we've, uh, we've celebrated together. Lord, we, we are adding uh, to your kingdom. We, we have a baptism today, but Lord, we also have twins that are on the way. We also have uh, friends and, and family members that have come to worship with us today. And so, Lord, we praise you. And Lord... We pause because we, we stand in awe of the fact that you have even granted us this moment. And so, Lord, we truly thank you for what it is that you are doing in the here and now, through this church, and through us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So every year, I, I like to spend some time, once Christmas kind of ends, I think you should be able to say Merry Christmas, even after Christmas. I think December 31st is probably the cutoff date for when you can say Merry Christmas. I don't think Christmas should infringe upon Thanksgiving, but I think Christmas can infringe upon New Year's. That's just, obviously, I'm very inconsistent with my thought, right? Very inconsistent. But around this time of year, I start to reflect on how did the year go? And this is something that I've just always done from when I would drive home from hockey practice with my mom and my mom and I, we would, we would discuss how did it go or how did the game go and was there, could I have made this play or did I feel like I had played up to my potential? And so Chris has seen that even after uh, church or even after you know, any, any type of ministry event or anything, we'll start to kind of 
discuss. How did it go? What did you think about this? Did, 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 did this line go together? And at first she wasn't quite sure why I was doing this, but it's because I'm always in motion that I have to reflect in motion. Otherwise, I'm just not going to reflect. But then comes New Year's, comes the end of the year. And every time I start to think, how did the year go? I remember this time last year. I'm at the Marietta Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I'm, I'm hashing out what, is the, what are the plans for 2020 with my uh, friend and the senior pastor, Matt Smith. And we're thinking, 2020, man, we should, we should almost play off the corniness of Perfect Vision 2020. So seeing Jesus clearly 2020 was an idea that we threw around. Or, you know, um, uh, a perfect gospel seen clearly 2020. Or some, something along these lines. We're, we're thinking about it. And then we get into 2020 and we have all these plans. And then we're halted. Because here comes this unfortunate thing that would start to affect every single one of our lives. And yet here we are, December 26, 2020. So where could we go in the Bible for perhaps the most fitting chapter to end a year like 2020? Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33. I've told some of you that this is perhaps the most numbersy chapter in all of Numbers. When I was calling uh, some pastoral mentors of mine or some friends or, or even kind of Googling or searching up other prominent speakers, I wanted to see what had other pastors preached through the book of Numbers. And it was almost a perfectly clean slate. You could not find, I mean, I looked up uh, megachurch preachers who, you know, preach through I, these, these themes, they're thematic preachers. I looked up um, some very well-known evangelical preachers who tend to preach through large books of the Bible, and I could only find little, tiny, single sermons with some aspect of numbers in it. Now, there are some pastors out there that have preached through numbers, but I understand why, having read the whole book several times now. I understand why there would be maybe a hesitancy to preach through numbers. It's because it seems almost like, why would the author write this down? Why would they spend so much attention, so much time with these details? Why not some other details? Why not spruce it up? Why not make it a little bit more compelling? Well, we're going to read the most numbersy chapter in all of Numbers, so bear with me. Numbers, chapter 33. It is page 179 to 180 in the Pew Bible. This is what it says. These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting places. They journeyed from Ramses in the first month of the 15th day of the first month. On the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. Then the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses and camped at Succoth. They journeyed from Succoth and camped in Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. They journeyed from Etham and turned back to Pi-Hahiroth, which faces Baal-Zephon, and they came before, or they camped before Migdal. 
They journeyed from before Haharoth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went three days' journey into the wilderness of Etham and camped at Merah. They journeyed from Merah and came to Elim. And in Elim they, there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. They journeyed from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. They journeyed from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dophka. And they journeyed from Dophka and camped at Alush. They journeyed from Alush and camped at Rephidim. Now it was there that the people had no water to drink. They journeyed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hataava. They journeyed from Kibroth Hataava and camped at Hazaroth. They journeyed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. They journeyed from Rithma and camped at Ramon Perez. They journeyed from Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. They journeyed from Libna and camped at Risa. They, they journeyed from Risa and camped at Kehelath or Kehelatha. They journeyed from Kehelatha and camped at Mount Shefer. They journeyed from Mount Shefer and camped at Harada. They journeyed from Harada and camped at Mechaloth. They journeyed from Mechaloth and camped at Tehath. They journeyed from Tehath and camped at Terah. They journeyed from Terah and camped at uh, Mithka. They journeyed from Mithka and camped at Hashmana. They journeyed from Hashmana and camped at Masaroth. And they journeyed from Masaroth and camped at Bini Jaakon. They journeyed from Bini Jaakon and camped at Hor Hagadad. And they journeyed from Hor Hagadad and camped at Jothbatha. They journeyed from Jothbatha and camped at Abernah. And then they journeyed from Abernah and camped at Ezion Geber. They journeyed from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. And they journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor at the edge of the land of Edom. Man, that's just a riveting read. I mean, you just feel like, wow. Like, I feel like we could just, should we just, closing prayer? Anyone? I mean, just... It's amazing, because here we're reading a, a, a story. Moses has, in essence, been told, trace the path out of Egypt to the promised land. Notice, I haven't even finished. Moses actually mentions 40 different places. 40. 40 different places by name. Now, we... Living in Atlanta, Georgia, maybe Milton, Alpharetta, Cumming, uh, Woodstock, uh, Dawsonville, Gwinnett County, uh, I'm, wherever it is that we're coming from, Atlanta, we read these places and we're like, okay, um, where is this? These just kind of seem like arbitrary pauses as they were journeying through the wilderness. But with each place came the entire camp of Israel having to set up their tents and camp. And with each time they set up their camps, there's a time for fellowship. Think, think about the, the trips that you've been on. Now, I absolutely hate something about the airport. Water is like seven bucks. It's just absurd that they would charge seven dollars for water. But as somebody who's traveled through airports, you start to realize that there are different waters at different airports that aren't in other places that you could purchase. And so I started to try because for some odd reason, I want to spend the $7 for water instead of the $5.50 for juice, almost like I'm not going to let them prevent me from drinking water, almost on principle. But as you're traveling from 
state to state, from airport to airport, from country to country, you start to realize that there's these other parts of water, which means that there's these other experiences that you get to have at each place, at each destination. Now, I'm not even going to get into the debate on if you visit the airport, does it count as visiting the state or the country? Because that's, that's a whole other argument. But with each place that you pause, each place that you have to take a momentary pause, is an opportunity for your story to have a change of events. Think of your year. Chances are we set out with so much promise. I mean, it was 2020. It just sounds so much better than 2021, and yet we know, standing in this position, 2021 sounds a lot better than 2020. But it's not even congruent. 2020, I mean, the numbers, they match up. Aesthetically, it looks a lot better. 2021 looks a little odd. It's an odd year. But for us, in our current situation, because of the stops along our journey, 2021 looks more promising. And so Moses is told, by command of the Lord, to retrace the steps. Now, this is Israel. Notice how the journey begins. These are the journeys of the sons of Israel. Moses, recording their started, uh, Moses recorded their starting places, verse 2, according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. And these are the journeys. Verse 3, they journeyed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. So notice, the, the starting point is they're in slavery. The starting point is Israel is still in Egypt. They're at Ramses, and that's the beginning of their journey, when they come up out of slavery. And how do they come up out of slavery? Well, they come up out of slavery because God steps in and performs these miracles on their behalf. I mean, these are the Israelites. This is 400 years of slavery. They're not trained in war. They're not trained in diplomacy. They're not trained in these things. They're slaves. And yet they, in a day, leave the most powerful empire. In fact, they, they take valuables from Egypt. That's how they build the tabernacle. That's how the tabernacle is lavished in gold. That's how the Ark of the Covenant is, is lavished in gold. That's how they make these, these cherubim-like figurines that are covering angels that go over the Ark of the Covenant, over the mercy seat. That's how they have all of these materials, because they're slaves. It's not like they ran home and then you know, went into their, their extravagant master closet and then went into the safe, that's a walk-in safe, and then took all of their valuables. They didn't have valuables. They took the valuables from the Egyptians as they left. But why were they able to leave? Because of God. And so Numbers 33 is really a story that Moses is told to tell to a new generation of Israelites who have seen their fathers and their mothers or their grandparents stumble along the way because for them, what they were seeing with their eyes, what they were hearing with their ears, what they were smelling with and, and tasting with their senses was overpowering their faith in what God was doing. And so their situation became louder than the promises of God. So why would we spend our last Sabbath together going through a chapter that largely just pauses and says, this is where they went, this is where they went, this is where they went, and this is where they went. Well, in my mind, there are, a couple, there are only a couple of seasons 
that happen throughout the year. There's hockey season, watermelon season. Watermelon season kind of infringes upon summer camp season, because summer camp is just the greatest place on earth, in my opinion, other than obviously our church, you know. Um, and then there is the other season. That's really it. It's three seasons. Hockey season, watermelon infringing upon summer camp season, kind of a mashup, right? And then there's just the other. And that's when there's not hockey and not watermelon. That's really, so it's just, it's just this, this kind of bland season, right? But in my mind, that's kind, that's kind of it. If you're an educator, you have school year, summer. School year, summer. If you're in sales, you might have the end of the year push, right? It's kind of like a season when, when you know, major uh, deals are, are broken through. And then you might have some downtime, right? But we have these seasons in life. But every year at summer camp, when I would work as a counselor, something would happen at the end of, of, of the summer camp experience. It was this video. It was this end of year in review. Or it was this, this end of camp in review. And I never realized why we were doing that because why would we want to revisit being vomited on by a first-time camper who is away from home for the first time. I mean, I remember being in orientation, and the camp director starts to go through, these are some of the things that might happen, and here are the best practices to go about um, cleaning up. Uh, he, he tells of a time where a camper vomited on him, came, came up to him, his name is Rick Faber, uh, he goes by uh, Uncle Rick, came up to him, tapped him on the shoulder, to tell him, I don't feel good. And in the middle of, I don't feel good, it just comes out all on Uncle Rick. And he has to pause because he said the protocol is, if you feel bad, tell your counselor. Your counselor will probably send, send you to me, and then you can tell me, and I'll tell you to go to the nurse. So it's following protocol. And here comes this, this camper, following exactly what, what he's supposed to do. And now he has to say, thank you for following protocol. Please go see the nurse. But he's just been vomited on. And yet... We're going to put instances like that in the end of camp video. Why? And all the, all the counselors are going to sit there and we're going to, I mean, we're going to give Uncle Rick a hard time. We're going to give our other counselors a hard time, right? We're going to have in the end of year or in the end of camp video, the belly flop competition, right? We're going to have all of these fun things, but then also within these fun things, there are going to be some times in the video where a, a, a camper is having a band-aid put on. Or a camper is, is being encouraged because they're crying, because they're sad, because they're missing their mom, and yet here comes their mom around the corner that they didn't know about, right? And we got it on video. I mean, in these end-of-camp experience videos, I started to realize that with good experiences, obviously there are bad experiences. We know this. We've, we live, and so we know that there are bad experiences. But the bad experiences often don't outweigh the good, unless we choose to make that the focal point. If we choose to make that the focal point, then what will happen is, is we'll become so cynical that we'll stop embracing the good moments, and then the good moments will seem like they're few and far between, and then before we know it, the, the picture of the world that we have painted is one that is just of bad. And Moses telling the story of Israel, journeying from place to place to place 
to place. He doesn't want this new group of Israelites, as they're about to enter into the promised land. In fact, as they're sitting there being told about these steps, about these destinations, they're right on the horizon. They're camped by the Jordan. On the other side of the Jordan is this place called Jericho. And it's the first city that Israel is going to go in and conquer. And so they're that close as Moses starts to tell them this story. And he begins the story with, remember what God did for you. He brought you out of a place of slavery and gave you freedom. But some of us, as we read this, we might think, okay, well, why is it just that point? Why is it now all of these other destinations? Well, this isn't a new thought. In fact, an early church father was asked the same question in the third century. His name is uh, Origen of Alexandria. He says, we cannot say of the Holy Spirit's writings that there is anything useless or unnecessary in them. We ought rather to turn the eyes of our mind to him who ordered this to be written and to ask of him their meaning. So if you're wondering, why does it have to be written this way? Israel went and camped here, and then they went and camped here, and then they went and camped here, and then they went and camped here, and then there's like a little bit more information, and then they ended up camping here. Don't say, well, why is this in the Bible? Go and ask God, God, why did you want this information to be written down? And what I think you'll find is so much beauty. Because when I read this, I legitimately think, wow, this is a very riveting read of a a group of people, a large group of people who have been redeemed. And here is all of the instances where God was providing for them. Because their sandals never wore out in all of this camping. Not one sandal wore out in all of this camping. And so, Origen of Alexandria says, hey, instead of saying, well, why is this in the Bible? We should say, God, why would you want me to read this? And I think we'll see these things. Gratitude for God's grace with us in the past inspires confidence for our future. And so when we sit and recall how it is that God has guided us, how it is that he's delivered us, how it is that he's protected us, how it is that he's met our needs we will start to realize that when we're facing some other instance, when we're facing some other giant, some other colossal you know, uh, pandemic or, or loss of job or, or relationship on the rocks, whenever we're facing whatever it is, we will have confidence to be able to meet those needs because of what God has done for us in the past. Gratitude for God's grace with us in the past inspires confidence for our future. So let's pause and look at a couple of these places. Just just a few. So notice, it says that, while, uh, verse 4, Numbers 33, verse 4, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. Then the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses and camped in Succoth. They journeyed from Succoth and camped in Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And then they go further out. So as they come out of Israel... They immediately are in this place of testing. They go to this peninsula, probably by the Gulf of Aqaba in, um, in Egypt. And on the other side of the Red Sea is modern-day Saudi Arabia, right? But there's this peninsula area. And on each side leading out to the peninsula are these, these mountains. And so it's really a valley. And as they probably journeyed through this, this is probably where they crossed over the Red Sea, 
they would have immediately been stuck with, here's the Red Sea in front of them, or to their back, and here comes the sound of chariots. Here comes the Egyptian military. They've just been freed, they've just pillaged the Egyptians, and yet here comes the, the military. Now they would have known about the might of the Egyptian military. You don't live as slaves without getting hit with the propaganda that your oppressors are strong. You don't live under a rock when you're a slave. You hear that if you overstep, the great might of the Egyptian military will crack down on you. Otherwise, how do you prevent an uprising if you just pretend to be soft? If you're, or if you just are soft? So Egyptian, their, their military was very strong. This is not some, you know, quasi, you know, very mellow military. No, this is the most powerful regime in, in their modern or in their known context. And so they start to hear and, and maybe, uh, maybe see on the horizon the chariots, and then here's this impassable body of water. They're really stuck between a rock and a hard place, and yet here comes God. Speaks to Moses and says, take your staff, walk out into the water, and place it down. And he parts the Red Sea. Insurmountable odds. Either try to swim across an entire nation or face the army of Egypt and be massacred. And yet here is God going and fighting on their behalf. In fact, this is what Moses says as Israel starts to, starts to get worried. He says, he, he says, actually, be silent. The Lord will fight for you. And so here, as Moses is recounting this journey from Egypt through the wilderness, Israel is being reminded that they don't have to rely on their own strength. They don't have to rely on their own intellect. They don't have to rely on their own beauty. They have a God that is so close to them that he will actually go and fight for them. You ever, you ever been told the story of David and Goliath where the, the application of the story is if you have the faith like David, you'll be able to go and, and conquer the Goliath? That's, that's a really bad misreading of the story. Because if we're honest, when we face a giant, we're more like the Israelites that are kind of quivering on the sideline, that are kind of like waiting for somebody strong to step in and intervene. And yet, chances are we've been told that we need to have the faith like David, and we'll be able to step out, no matter what our age is, and go and conquer the giant. But in reality, who is the David that steps into our situation? It's Jesus. We don't have to have that pressure of having enough faith like David because we have a Savior named Jesus who has gone before us and has conquered. God promises to go and fight our battles. So the Lord will fight for you. But then Moses goes and he, he names three places in particular, Merah, Elam, and Rephidim. And these three places would have been very well known. They would have been at the forefront of Israel's mind because in these three places, God provided for, the, for their needs. He provided for their immediate needs. You have Merah, where the water was undrinkable, and the Lord provided a, a miracle to where it becomes drinkable. Now, without water, we're not going to live for very long. And yet, here is God, having brought them to this place, and now he's cleansing, he's purifying the water so that they can drink it. Then you have this place called Elam. And Elam was where there's these palm trees and 12 springs of water. Shade 
and water. And then you have Rephidim, where the Israelites start to grumble again, and God provides this amazing miracle where Moses strikes a rock, and here comes rivers in the wilderness. Now, a river is not like an oasis. A river has life to it. A river, you can, you can run up and put your cup to where if it's, if it's running fast enough, right? If it has enough life, you can run, you can put your cup up, and you can drink water out of it because it's flowing water. And so here is an instance that Moses is bringing to Israel's mind of here are the ways that God has met your immediate needs. Here are the ways where, here are the places where God has provided the water and the shade. Here is, here, here is the God that you are following, a God that will meet our needs. The psalmist would go on to, to remind um, their day about this, where he says, He opened the rock and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. This instance of water coming out of a rock was such a monument, such a, such a moment in history that it would be passed down from generation to generation to generation to where Paul would eventually say, that rock was Christ. Christ is the one who provides living water. But then back to Numbers 33, Moses then knowing that he's speaking to a different people, in fact, if we had looked up several chapters prior, we would notice that, that this nation of Israel is not the same nation that was first numbered in the very first census. See, the story of Israel is not one that is always just all these positives, all this, uh, you know, this glitz and glam. It's not this, this amazing story of perfection. It's a story of people who are not unlike you and I, who struggle in trusting if God is going to come through in that instance. Because if we're honest, there is a level of doubt that we sometimes have. And, and doubt, is not, doubt is not a negative thing. Sometimes we want to we say, if you're having doubts, well, you just need to strengthen your faith. No, I mean, it's, it's okay to explore doubts because that means you're being curious. And if you're being curious, that means right on the other side is a more concrete faith. And so doubts are not something to be discouraged. Doubts are, are an opportunity for God to really say, this is who I am, so that it, your faith is solidified. And so Israel has this story of people where they were doubting. They, they didn't know if God was actually going to come through. Was he going to do what, they, what he said he was? They'd been brought out of slavery, but what, would he actually come through? And so Moses tells of three other instances that are really, really sad. Kibroth Hata'ava where Israel starts to grumble and starts to say, Lord, are you, are you going to just let us die of hunger? Are you, are you actually guiding us? And so God kind of, kind of uh, his, his pillar of fire kind of scorches the out, outskirts of the camp. And so Moses recalls Kibroth Hata'ava, this place where there was grumbling. There was this place, there's this low place. And then there's Kadesh. Kadesh is the place where the spies come back and they've spied out the land and, and you have two who are saying, yes, it's fantastic. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And then you have 10 who bring back a false report. They, they, they tell a lie. They say, no, 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 no. We can't do it. We can't conquer. They're too powerful. The God that has been protecting us, that's been guiding us, that's been feeding us, that's been giving us water, he's not going to be able to conquer these giants. And so all of Israel says, okay, well, we're going to believe the ten instead of the two. 
And so they go with the ten. That's at Kadesh. And then you have uh, Abel Shatim, which is this place where you have Israel, and they unite with the Moabites. And the Moabites have gods that are not anything like the God of Israel. The Moabite gods uh, delight in child sacrifice. The Moabite gods delight in sexual deviance, where you are able to procure favor from their gods for an abundant harvest. And so here you have perhaps the lowest moment in Israel's history up to this point where they start to embrace other gods. Now, we have other gods in our present day. They don't look like the Moabite gods, but we tend to think if we do this, we will procure favor. There's this, uh, there's this thought along, uh, along the lines of Christianity. It's not true Christianity. It's false Christianity, but it's a prosperity gospel where if we have the right belief system, then we won't ever go through hardship. That's, Jesus had the perfect belief system, and he was crucified. So the prosperity gospel can't be true because it does away with Jesus' sacrifice at the end. If you have the perfect belief system, if you're the perfect Adventist, or if you're the perfect Christian, if you have all Bible knowledge and you have you know, books of the Bible memorized, you're never going to fall on hard times. That's not Christianity. Because we're living in a world that has sin. And so we have modern gods where it might be our religion that is our God, and it's not Jesus. It might be our political affiliation that's our God, and it's not Jesus. It might be our tribalism that is our God. It might be sports. We have other gods. And yet here, Moses is telling about the incident at Abel Shatim where the Israelites united with the Moabites and engaged in, in horrendous acts. And Moses isn't mincing words. He knows that the, the people in front of him, that he's telling the story to, they're aware. They have these, these locations. They have these, these stories at the forefront of their minds. Sometimes we only like to dwell on the good. We don't want to ponder the bad. But with every bad situation, there comes an opportunity to, to repent and to know a deeper level of grace. This is why Jesus says that it is those who have, who have sinned, and when, he's, when he says those who have sinned, he's meaning those who have sinned and really sinned will know grace to a different level. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've gone off and you've been, you know, this, this type of life and you've, had, you've lived this kind of, you know, prodigal life, that you're going to have a better understanding of grace than someone who grew up in a very nice Christian home. No, it's based off of your understanding of your sin. Because really, all sin is on an equal playing field. There's no partiality. Now, God says that pride is really the root of all sin, because it's complete selfishness, but all sin is really on the same playing field. And so if you grew up in a Christian home, or, or you don't feel like you've ever really had a struggle, you never had to overcome an addiction, or you've had multiple addictions that God has had to help you through, you can understand grace at the same level. You just have to understand sin at the same level. And so Moses wants Israel to, to know that with, with his grace comes an opportunity to respond and it doesn't mean respond by just saying, okay, Lord, and then going about your life as usual. No, it requires commitment. It requires faithfulness. It requires an aspect of, of energy. 
It requires an aspect of, of work. But you don't work to earn the grace because the grace is already given to you. You work because that grace energizes you. But as Moses kind of goes through this destination to this destination to this destination, he transitions into really a very small sermon, a sermonette, picking up in verse 50. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, opposite of Jericho, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. To the larger you shall give more inheritance. To the smaller you shall give less inheritance. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as thorns in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And as, a, and as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. Moses basically says, here is a, a pretty radical command. When you go into this new land, drive out all of their high places, all of their figured idols, all of their false places of worship, drive them out. And then he says, I have given this land to you. Now that's amazing news because this is a group of ragtag wanderers that have never owned anything in their life. They've been slaves. They don't have a home. And yet now God is saying, this will be your home. I have given this land to you. It will be, from, it will be passed down from your generation to the following generation to the following generation to the following. It will be in your family line up until you don't want it to be. I've given this land to you. Full ownership. Not a mortgage payment with an interest rate. No, they, they own it outright. I mean, that's an amazing gift. But then God forewarns them and says, but if you don't drive out these false worshipers, if you don't drive out the, these people that, that have these false gods that delight in child sacrifice, that delight in sexual deviance, it's going to come back to haunt you. And the reason for that is not because God is this avengeful God. It's because when you let something linger, when you let something stay that is unhealthy, when you, when you have a, a, some assumption in a relationship where somebody says something and you assume that it actually means this and it changes your opinion about them, if you let that linger without coming and speaking to them, that relationship will start to break. If you have a team, if you work in a team, and somebody becomes toxic in that team, and you don't address it, that team will never be as strong as it used to be. And so God is not this vengeful God. No, the best truth about God in the Bible is that God is love. And yet, if there's something that is anti-love that you allow to stay, it will change your idea of love. And before you know it, you will end up hurt. And so Moses gives this challenge to these Israelites, this new generation, as they go into the promised land to drive out these high places, to drive out these places of 
disfigured stones to destroy their molten images, to not worship the same way that they worship, because they require you to offer up your children. They require you to procure favor from their gods by engaging with, with, uh, with temple prostitutes. I mean, these are gods that are not the same God that, that has led Israel up out of slavery, that has guided them through the wilderness, through his grace, has fought on their behalf, and has simply asked for just faithfulness in return. And yet we know the story of Israel because we still have more Bible left in our Bibles. That they did not exactly adhere to Moses' command. They didn't adhere. Though they were given this lot of land, though they accepted this promise, for I have given the land to you to possess it, and they started to pass that land down from generation to generation to generation, we know that they don't actually go out and expel these false places of worship. In fact, they go and they unite with them. They start to allow these images of the God that brought them out of slavery to, to or sorry, they, they start to allow these images of false worship to influence their picture of the God that brought them out of slavery. And so then their picture of God radically changes. And the most important thing about us, in fact, I read this quote a long time ago. It was one of the first Christian quotes and one of the first Christian books I ever read. It says, what we think about when we think about God, what comes to our mind when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. Because if our picture of God is one that is vengeful, then we will seek vengeance. If our picture of God is one that, that is okay with torture but can be loving, then we'll be okay with torture and think that we're loving. Our picture of God really dictates our belief structure because our belief structure is about the God that we believe in and what he's ultimately doing the story that he's ultimately telling. And so Israel didn't adhere to Moses' warning. And so we pick up in the book of Habakkuk, very small book, page 933. And we find a prophet that is not like the other prophets because Habakkuk is, is, uh, is really this, it's three chapters. And Habakkuk is simply asking God, God, when are you going to intervene? It's different time. And yet Habakkuk sees the, the wickedness that Israel has adopted. It's been there. It's, it's been through, through times, through seasons of revival and then seasons of, of straying away. He's seen these, these horrendous things. He's seen these religious leaders and they're, they're surrendering the poor and they're valuing the rich and they're, they're not taking care of their brother. They're not caring for the widow. They don't, they're not loving. They're not ex, uh, extending other-centered love. And so here they are and here's Habakkuk. And he, instead of going and telling Israel, this is what you're doing, he just says, God, what are, when are you going to do something? When are you going to step in? When are you going to break through? This is a prayer that I found myself praying before I really knew that I was going to be a Christian. As I had just come back from a camping, camping trip, and I would quit my job. Some of you know this story. I would quit my job to read the Bible, and... I, I didn't necessarily know what I was doing. I was still kind of along the lines where I thought the Bible was this really mystical book. And so when I would sit down to read it, I would say, okay, Bible, do your thing. And then I would just open it. And then I would just start reading, thinking that something would happen. And I remember coming back from my camping experience, and, and God had done something amazing. And, and I, he was at work, but I was still very much on the fence. And yet I found myself praying, God, when are you going to intervene if you're there? When are you going to do something? Because I don't feel like... 
my life is living up to the expectations that I had for it. I don't feel like this season of life is, is where I should be. I'm 19 at the time, and I'm thinking, God, this is not where I plan to be at this time in my life. I did not plan to be here. I plan to be somewhere else, and yet here I am. And so if you're there, when are you going to step in? When are you going to do something? When are you going to send someone to change what's going on in the world? And I realized that I was saying a similar prayer to Habakkuk, because that's really Habakkuk's prayer. God, when are you going to step in? If you are such a great God, when are you going to do something? And God comes back to him and says, oh, Habakkuk, am I going to do something? I'm going to do something that has never been done before. I'm going to do something so amazing that it will leave people in awe. In fact, I want you to write it down, Habakkuk. Write down what I'm about to tell you. Write down what I'm about to show you. And then he gives this beautiful verse where it says, The just shall live by his faithfulness. The just shall live by his faithfulness. And we've taken this verse, and within Christianity, we've hijacked it to mean something that it was never intended to mean, because that verse is God telling Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the just one, or the just, shall live by his faithfulness, is really saying, you shall live according to the faithfulness that I am about to provide. And he's talking about Jesus. So here's Habakkuk, looking at the world, looking at his world, and saying, God, when are you going to step in? And for many of us, if we were to sit and reflect on our year, we might have a similar prayer. God, when are you going to come? Are you going to ever come? God, when are you going to be in? When are you, when are you going to show up? When can my family member stop going through that diagnosis? When can my family member stop getting chemo? When can I... When, when can my job, when can my boss stop being so harsh to me? When can my relationship within my home stop being broken? When, when can all of these things be fixed, God, if you're such a wonderful God? When are you going to step in and do something? And God's response to Habakkuk and his response to us is, I have done something that is so amazing. I've done this great event. It's on this place called Calvary, where I set my camp, my permanent camp as a display of the greatest story. And so here's Moses with the Israelites. And he's telling the story of how they've come out of slavery and they camped here and then they went 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 here and then 40 times. Each time, different significance. Each time, different story. And for us, we might read it and we might say, well, why? It's the journey of Israel. When in reality, it's the story that we find ourselves in all the time. When we go from this situation to this situation, from this situation to this situation, we have moments where God steps in profoundly and meets our needs, and then we have moments where, where we don't believe that he's going to, and we take it into our own hands, and we stumble. And yet 40 times... Israel wanders, which is good news, because that means that if the last time, if our last experience was one of stumbling, there's another opportunity. If our year hasn't lived up to the expectations that we had for it, there's another opportunity. In fact, our opportunity is rooted, is planted on a mountain. It's called Calvary. And on that place 
is where God publicly displayed his love, saying, I will be so faithful that you cannot get rid of my faithfulness. All I ask is that you would live within my faithfulness. That's the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is not this archaic book where it's all of a sudden, it's this place that I have no idea where it is, and it's this place where I have no idea where it is, and it's this instance that seems really archaic or really boring or kind of a snooze fest. No, it's a story of people that were doing the best that they could with the story that they found themselves in, and yet all through it is a God that is faithful. We have found ourselves in a year that felt like a wilderness. We found ourselves in a year that that kept swinging even though we thought it was knocked out. And no matter how many times we thought we delivered that knockout blow, it somehow threw something completely different at us. And so I don't know what 2021 will bring. And to be honest, I don't really care. Because I do know one thing. And that is that we have a God that is incredibly faithful. And that no matter what, 2021, 2020, 2022, 2023 can throw at us, we have an ultimate storyteller who is writing our stories and all that he asks of us is to surrender. All he asks of us is to embrace his faithfulness and we will wind up as characters in a story that will be told for ages. In fact, it will be told for eternity. And so I'm okay with that because that's the God that we serve. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for Numbers chapter 33 because with this number or with this book, with this chapter, comes an opportunity to reflect. And Lord, as Moses sat there and and told the story to a, a new generation of leaders within Israel's camp, he recalled these instances where you were, you were victorious for Israel. You provided the, the immediate needs for Israel. You even provided comforts for Israel. And there were moments of, of lowness where Israel didn't respond to what it is that you were doing. And yet, Lord, you, you didn't just finish their story right then and there, but you allowed them to have an opportunity to, to train up their next generation. And so, Lord, as we read this story of Israel camping from this place to this place, or this place, or this place, may you help us to see ourselves in that story. Because, Lord, our lives are often in motion, and we often go from this place to this place, from this good place to this bad place, or from this bad place to this good place. But, Lord, we know that you're still writing these stories. And, Lord, 2020 has thrown everything it possibly had at us, and yet we are here only because of your faithfulness. In fact, Lord, we have a baptism because of your faithfulness. And so, Lord, we thank you that this year ends on a better note than it began with an opportunity to see a rebirth, a new birth, as a display of your faithfulness. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.